It's the 19th hole with Michael Williams. Welcome, 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 everybody, to this very special edition, this championship edition of the 19th hole. Michael Williams, your host here on Golf WRX. Uh, it is going to be a great championship week. This is our first championship of the year. It's typical of the COVID-19 era because this championship, which was moved from August to May in order to become the first championship of the year, has now moved back to August and is still the first championship of the year. That is the story of 2020. But we're glad that uh, we're getting a chance to see some championship golf once again. 95 of the top 100 players in the world are in San Francisco to challenge TPC Harding Park and get their hands on the Watermaker Trophy. And uh, we have some great folks in to talk about it, that and also the next championship because now I'm on a roll with this championship week thing. So we have people to talk about these first two championships of the year. Are you ready for that? So talking about TPC Harding Park and giving us a look at what that course is and how it's going to play is the great Robert Trent Jones Jr. He's going to talk about uh, the signature holes, the, the history of the golf course, and the type of player that you expect to win there, the type of player that does well. Also joining, we will have John Bodenhammer. He's the guy who sets up the major championships, all of the championship tracks for the USGA. Uh, he is going to give us an inside, way, way out preview of Wingfoot, where the U.S. Open will be held later on this year in about a month, I guess it's going to be with the U.S. Open. Uh, a lot of great insights from John. I mean, this is the guy who sets the course up, okay? This is the guy who decides what kind of track is going to uh, be the the venue for the arguably the most difficult championship to, to win in, in the world. Um, he is uh, full of knowledge and uh, really can't wait to, to talk to him about Winged Foot, that you know, historic championship track that was built for championships. That's literally in the charter for the golf course. It was built to host championships. So they've got one, and we can't wait to hear what John has to say about it. So before we get to them real quick, let's take a look at the PGA Championship and what's coming up for this week. Um, the 102nd PGA Championship is being held at TPC Harding Park. This is, of course, a public venue in San Francisco. Uh, so a lot more people have played this than, let's say, Wingfoot. Uh, but it is a course that is uh, well worthy after its renovation by uh, Sandy Tatum, legendary figure, who's going to be honored this week uh, in golf, in championship golf. Uh, it was his baby, his, uh, his vision, and it has uh, come to fruition here with this PGA Championship being held at that venue. So before we get into the pairings and favorites, uh, it's almost as interesting to take a look at who's out before we, uh, as it is to take a look at who's in. So when you look at the people who have pulled out, you have Patrick Harrington, uh, three-time major champion, out. Francesco Molinari, out. Uh, Paul Waring, out. All of these are WDs. Uh, J.B. Holmes, big hitter. <clears throat> J.B. Holmes, out. Uh, Charles Howell III, who's been playing well. I believe he had a second-place finish uh, a couple of weeks ago. He is out. Brandon Grace pulls out because of a positive COVID-19 test. He is out. John Daly is out. He suffered a rib injury earlier this year and not sure that he's fully recovered to the point where he has a chance to really compete in this major championship. He's out. Vijay Singh, out. Uh, Ryan Moore, out. Uh, so we have a lot of players that are have had uh, a level of success, especially a level of success in the PGA Championship. We talk about two former champions and John Daly and Vijay Singh both out. So um, there are a lot of openings there. And I think it's probably because of COVID-19, it's uh, you know probably uh, never a better year uh, to be uh, a, a top level alternate. I know Pat Perez is near the top of that alternate list. And I bet that he is waiting with a bag packed and packed in a mask on his face, ready to go travel to get to this championship if he needs to. Um, Ryan Moore might be the interesting, most interesting one of the uh, the withdraws. He cited a schedule conflict as the reason he will miss the championship. A schedule conflict with the PGA? Uh, 
I'm sorry, I can't attend this major championship because I got this thing, you know, I got this thing, you know, my car, I had to get it serviced. It really takes a long time to get this guy. He's one of the best. And if you cancel that, you know, you got to set it back almost like two months, you know, to get back in line. So I, I have no idea. I jest, but just setting a schedule conflict, that's just funny to me. You know, <laughs> like give us some information, man, some detail on that one. Okay, so let's go to the field of who's out there. Um, again, you got 95 of the top 100 playing. So, you know, you can basically, you know, swing a five iron and hit somebody who's capable of winning this championship. They're all really good players. And, you know, with a course like this and the championship set up, it's going to be someone who's long and having a good day, having a good day with a driver, having a good day slash week with uh, with the putter. Uh, that's who wins major championships. Got to be a little bit long. You got to be having a great day with a putter because uh, the greens are going to be set to uh, to roll for a championship golf. Uh, looking at some of the interesting pairings, though, um, the ones that catch my eye, uh, I think you may be able to look for a champion out of the pairing of uh, Ricky Fowler, Bryson DeChambeau, and Adam Scott. I'm going to say that it's not going to be Bryson. I don't think his mind has caught up to his body yet. That's just me. Um, but, you know, if you add 30, 40 pounds of weight, you got to update the software, too. And I don't think that that's exactly what's happened. Ricky Fowler still looking to break through on the championship level. We shall see. Um, love the next pairing after that. John Rahm, Phil Mickelson, Sergio Garcia. John Rahm. Uh, you know, spent, what, about six seconds at number one before Justin Thomas overtook him, but obviously still playing very, very well in top form. Phil, uh, really, you know, he has these flashes still of being Phil with an exclamation point. And, uh, you know, you can't really count him out. If he can stay energized, let's say, and engaged for four days, you know, he has a chance. And, of course, Sergio Garcia you know, you never know which Sergio is going to show up. And, you know, I think probably tortured Sergio is a better player than happy Sergio. He's pretty happy right now. Well, I don't know if that happiness is going to allow him to actually break through and have the type of, um, you know, sort of Spanish angst that he needs to, to break through and play his best golf. We shall see. Uh, next pairing down from then, the 509 um, for, the first, uh, for the first day, Paul Casey, Ian Poulter, and uh, Webb Simpson. Love the way Webb Simpson has been playing. This is one of the nicest guys in golf. Literally one of the nicest guys. Not even in like golf. He's one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Um, generous to a fault. Patient. Always has something nice to say. And uh, his game has been renovated, resurrected, and a couple of other R words to get it to the point now where he is playing some fantastic golf. He's a type of metronome a uh, guy who can win a PGA championship, can win a major championship. Watch for him. Um, then you've got, uh, let's see. I like uh, starting on the number T, 10 T at, uh, at uh, about 1030, 1027. You got Tony Finau, Danny Willett, Patrick Cantley. I like Tony Finau. I mean, I think Tony Finau is going to be a major champion someday, and I'd uh, like him to win. This uh, to win this championship, his obvious Achilles heel is being able to get it together on on Sunday. You know he's had great success for the first three days of the tournament, but you know if tournaments lasted three days, Greg Norman would be the best player of all time. So you know he's got to close it out for that for that four day thing. Uh, then you've got what the 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 foursomes that uh, threesomes that everybody's looking at the eleven eleven. And I like that, you know, 11-11, that's uh, my birthday, 11-11. So I, I, I love that 11-11 tea time. You got Brooks Kepka, Gary Woodland, Shane Lowry. I would not be surprised at all to see a champion come from, from that foursome, that, from that threesome. I keep saying foursome, threesome. Uh, I mean, look at it. You got Gary Woodland, defending U.S. Open champion. Uh, he's a guy who's gone the other direction from uh, DeChambeau that he's uh, sort of streamlined his body in an attempt to have more flexibility, to have less weight to carry around the golf course. Uh, and, you know, he's, again, a guy who could, at any given moment, just put all the tools together <clears throat> and and just break out. You have Brooks Kepka uh, and you have Shane Lowry. Uh, these guys, uh, all uh, champions, uh, all have the absolute game to win this thing and Kepka 
has a giant chip on his giant shoulders. So I would say, you know, look out for this one. Next one. I mean, these three in a row <clears throat> are just going to be killer. Uh, Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, Justin Thomas. Can you imagine the crowds around this pairing if there were fans? I mean, this would be like Madison Square Garden following a, a basketball game around a city. Just, you know, I have to just watch this. I have to stay with this. It would be 20,000 people moving in unison to follow a group of three guys playing golf. Uh, and then, but now you won't. And it's just going to be fascinating to, to see how these guys do. Tiger is somebody who feeds off of the energy. Rory, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Rory feeds off of his good fortune. You know, if you if he starts to hit a couple of putts, if he starts to hit it close with his wedges, he feeds off of his own energy. And I don't know that necessarily the crowd makes a difference for him uh, in a positive way. I think that anybody who's in a Tiger Woods crowd you know, can be affected negatively by, you know, the carnival and circus that that is still to this day now more than ever, really. And then you got Justin Thomas, who I think for the modern pro, I think he has the mind the thinker that is the closest to Tiger Woods. This is the guy who's the son of a professional and he thinks about the game in a very, very meticulous way. He's thinking about um, multiple results. He's thinking about the lie. He's thinking about the win. I mean, all of the things that the good players do, but you know, the rest of us are doing uh, arithmetic. He's doing algebra out there in that same way Tiger Woods did it. And I, I, I just love Justin Thomas's game. I mean, Tiger Woods, you know, is there anybody you would rather watch than Tiger Woods? Rory McIlroy might be the answer to that question. A young, on-form Rory McIlroy is the only guy to me who plays that type of golf in a similar way that's just that, has that uh, spectacular level when he's on. But Justin Thomas has uh, just all of the fireworks and he has that cool, calm, assassin type of thing. I believe he's won a major championship after going back-to-back, -back after winning the week before. Um, he's won a PGA championship after winning the week before. Somebody can fact-check me on that one. But uh, I love that pairing. And then after that wave goes through, you got Louis Oosthuizen, Max Helma, and Matt Fitzpatrick. That's, you know, just three entertaining guys. I wish you could just mic them up and play it on a separate channel because that would be great to hear Max, Louis giggle, and uh, Matt Fitzpatrick going at it, that would be just uh, a tremendous fun. So if you look at those groupings, um, I'm going to say, you know, let's go for the favorites here. Uh, look, DeChambeau, no, again, I say I don't think so. Um, I I'm going to go with this grouping here. I, I think sometime uh, from that those nine players uh, you got from Brooks, Kepra, Gary Woodland, Brooks Kepka, Gary Woodland, Shane Lowry. You got Spieth, Dustin Johnson, Justin Rose at 11:22. You got Tiger, Rory, and Justin Thomas uh, in three separate groups. Um, by the way, Jordan Spieth, if you haven't uh, forgotten, is still playing for the career Grand Slam. He hasn't won the PGA. That would complete the career Grand Slam for him. Wouldn't it be something if he won his before uh, Rory run his? Because I, I didn't think that that was going to happen, but it would be kind of cool to see that dude put it together and, and win that major championship. Tiger, of course, playing for championship number 16 and number win number 83 to eclipse Sam Snead. Um, and Rory's just playing, you know, to, to get that, get out, you know, he's got to win another major championship. He, he can go O for the rest of his career on major championships. I don't think so. This would be a great place for him to put up that, uh, put up that number, to put up that temp championship. But my choice for this one is Justin Thomas. The guy won last week. This is, of course, for players who have the tools and are on form. You got to have the tools and you have to be on form. And that's where Justin Thomas is right now. I like him to win this one. I'd say he'd be my favorite for the U.S. Open right now. Because even more of a thinker's course at, uh, at winged foot. Um, I, I, just, I just love his game. He doesn't, he's not a big guy. He can still bomb it. He hits it where it needs to be. He has precision. He has no weak spots in his game, and he's just got this quiet arrogance, you know, that uh, just, just I don't know, there's something about it. I mean, you think about what he did over at Memorial earlier in the year. He was faced with a, what, 50-foot putt to stay in the tournament, 
and he nails it. He just nails it. I mean, we'd still be listening to the echoes from the fans at that putt alone from this year. That may be the most exciting moment of this uh, of this year. Um, it was just a, a spectacular display of the type of um, just cold-hearted killer that guy is. You know, for him, it's not over till it's over. Um, and he expects to be winning a championship when he goes out there. So that's going to be my pick. I'm going to say... I'm going to say Justin Thomas is going to put up a PGA championship. But, you know, from right there in that group, you know, wouldn't be surprised if you find uh, from from those uh, from those nine, 12 players, uh, a winner coming from that group. So it's going to be a great championship. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch Um, a lot of uh, uh, coverage as we go back to CBS from from TNT. Um, Again, networks switching in this COVID-19 year. We have the U.S. Open going back to NBC and talk some with uh, John Bodenhammer about that. Uh, so those are my picks. Get yours in to me. How do you do that? Hit me up on social media. I'm at Michael Williams TV on Instagram and at Michael on TV on Twitter. You can go ahead, and hit me up, tell me your picks, tell me why I'm wrong about my picks or, you know, can, you know, talk about something else if you want to. I'm open to it. Uh, you uh, really just need to be watching this championship. I am so excited to see championship golf. You know, I, if anything, this year has taught me that there's other things besides sports, even other things besides golf. But this one is just good to see. It brings a smile to my face. And I want to give just a special thanks to all those people who are out there and bravely making this championship ha- happen. Um, Seth Waugh, um, Susie Whaley, um, Jeff Price, all the team that's out there making uh this tournament happened. I, I tip my hat. Dan Dillon, who's a local champion there, um, local chairman, I should say, uh, for this for this event. I, I just my hats off to you for for making this championship happen. We are all so grateful and are really looking forward to what we see over the course of the next uh, next four to five days. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Uh, again. Bobby, Robert Trent Jones Jr., talking about TPC Harding Park and what it's going to look and play like on TV. Also, we have John Bodenhammer, who is the director of championships for the USGA, to talk to us uh, in advance about Wingfoot. So you can start getting ready for that and uh, place your early prop bets. It's going to be a great show, and I'm so glad you're here for it. Stay with us. Michael Williams, 19th hole, golf, WRX. There, Jay Peterman here, John O'Hurley, and you are listening to Mike Williams and the 19th Hole. Welcome back to the 19th Hole. Mike Williams here, your host on Golf WRX. Uh, the PGA Championship has uh, been confirmed and affirmed. We will be seeing championship golf. Uh, it's going to be at a public venue the tpc course there in san francisco there's a very interesting story behind that golf course and that venue how it came to be and how it came to be a venue for championship golf joining us now to talk about that is a guy who knows i'm going to say everything about everything when it comes to golf courses golf course architecture and just your basic all-around history of the game he is a good good friend of the 19th hole and a good good friend of mine please welcome one of the greats of golf course architecture, Robert Trent Jones Jr. Bobby, welcome back to the 19th hole. How are you, sir? Well, I'm I'm doing great, Michael, and I hope you you and your family are too. I'm with my uh, daughter and her people in uh, paradise. I'm in Kauai, Hawaii, and playing a little golf, and we're we're safe. So, hope uh, all of you are. Um, yeah. So now I just about as green as a master's jacket because uh with envy because you are in hawaii and i am not um so that's okay i'm not bitter i'm just a little bit jealous uh so uh let's let's just go directly to the people remember douglas the hurricane tried to come in here and he 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 gave us a pass when he heard he had to quarantine for 14 days you may have to wait a little bit (laughs) (laughs) Worth, worth the wait i'd say um, well, we got a PGA Championship coming up, and we have it at TPC Harding Park. Uh, I know a little bit about that course. I'm sure whatever I know, you know more. Um, 
I think the story of how the course came to be is just as interesting as talking about the course, the holes and the layout, et cetera. So I want to start with the history of the course and uh, the guy who sort of had the vision for putting it there. Um, give me sort of a, a, a brief history uh, of Harding Park. Well, you may know as much as I do about that that particular time, but as I, my understanding is that the people who designed uh, Golden Gate Park, um, the famous thousand acres in San Francisco, which replicated Central Park in New York, uh, in the in the early part of the 20th century, uh, also laid out part of, of golf courses, sort of as an add-on, including a nine-hole in Golden Gate Park. They, um, they, they, their names escape me right now. So they come back. You maybe help me. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the one of the people laid it out also laid out uh, Olympic Club on the side of the hill, and this was in an era of um, municipal golf courses being built throughout the nation, including in Washington D.C., which is down along the, uh, the Potomac and then other parts of the country, Bethpage, Black Lake, Bethpage, rather, and Bethpage uh, State Park courses. And, and San Francisco was a progressive city, always was, and so, so they had a public golf course for uh, all the people, and um, eventually they needed a name for it. And as you may or may not know, President Harding died in San Francisco in the Palace Hotel. So in order to honor him, the city fathers uh, decided to name this new municipal golf course in his honor, thus Harding Park. Mm-hmm. And the the park stood as a municipal golf course uh, for a long period of time. And as municipals tend to do, because they're at the, the whim of poli- the politics of the day, the budget uh, constraints that might be uh, might be in place for any particular administration, it fell into a state of sort of uh, uh, disrepair. And uh, it was, I believe, Sandy Tatum who, who had the vision for restoring this golf course to uh, former glory and beyond and making it a venue that was worthy of a, of a championship. Did you know Sandy Tatum very well? Well, not only did I know Sandy Tatum, but I admired Sandy Tatum. He was a mentor to me. The first time I met him, he was on the committees that overlook Spyglass Hill when I was in my apprenticeship period working for my father during the construction of uh, Spyglass Hill in the 1960s. Uh, he was a, uh, you know, a giant among golfing people. He was a, a well-spoken absolutely dedicated to our game in all its aspects. And we got the privilege to work with him and Sandy and uh, Tom Watson uh, in the in a, you know, creation of what was now known as Spanish Bay at Pebble Beach. And thus he became interested in architecture while he was, he was uh, doing that work. <laughs> in terms of Harding Park itself, I would say Harding Park is one of many municipal courses in San Francisco, Sharp Park, Lincoln Park. Uh, San Francisco had a very public, open to the public um, attitude towards the use of its green spaces, including golf, for, from the from the very beginning. And it's true that the, all of those courses did, you know, get neglected over time, and for a variety of reasons, including budgets and competition for monies for the city. But for the most part, they were funded by the people who used them. Yeah. So they didn't really lose money. They, in fact, some of them made money, and the, and the other parks issues used their money for uh, what you might call play parks and other kinds of green spaces, which were important too. And I know that um, there was an era, you know, after Tiger burst onto the scene, and you had uh, the public at large wanting to play golf, and the communities were looking around and seeing that most of the golf uh, available was mm-hmm. in, or the quality golf, let's say, air quotes, quality was in uh, private venues that they wanted to have this restoration. And Sandy has, was the visionary behind the restoration of uh, Beth Page, uh, behind the restoration of, of TPC Harding Park. Um, you as a golf course architect, how gratifying is it for you to see these these public courses uh, give just the average fan to opportunity to, to go out and you pay your money and you take your chances on the same um, grounds that some of the greats of the game get to walk and play and do their thing? Well, I, uh, golf always was a public sport. St. Andrews is a public golf course. It's owned by the municipality. Mm-hmm. It's only the English and later some of the Americans and other parts of the Commonwealth which made them, of course, more private. And as, as a consequence, some of the great championships are played on very, very private courses, such as Augusta National. So you can watch Augusta National to see people play it, but you can't go and play it yourself unless you have an invitation, right. which is very, is very hard to get. But in the public golf sector... 
uh, Harding Park, uh, Page, uh, I think uh, Chambers Bay, uh, mm-hmm. Torrey Pines have mm-hmm. a place where you can do both. You can see the golfer, you can walk in and you can fantasize and be a Walter Mitty and try to play it yourself. And you'll learn very quickly how skilled these players are when you realize you can't hit it half the distance they do off the day or uh, have the skill level that these great players you, you can uh, in, enjoy the same experience they ha- they are on national television, but uh, with your foursome. Well, uh, my one of my favorite lines of yours is when we go out and play, and you, you'll hit a drive, and you'll hit it in the middle, but you'll turn to me and say, "Michael, my distance has left me for a younger man." And I, I just, yeah. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I think some of us, even when we were younger, never had the distance to do what uh, these professionals do. You know, awesome the the the, the distances they hit it and uh, the things that they can do with their golf ball. But all that being said, the chance to get to actually play on the same venues you know we're not going to go shoot hoops at madison square garden and we're not going to throw baseballs at yankee stadium but we do get a chance to hit putts at championship venues and i think that's a that's a beautiful thing um have you had a chance to to take a look at that course tpc harding park have you ever walked or played that course well oh yeah i actually uh, went there with sandy a couple times when he was doing it i think sandy's major contribution to re- renovating and remodeling and refreshing uh, was to get it through the political spectrum, as you mentioned. Uh, mayor Willie Brown was mayor at that time, and mm-hmm. he was very supportive, and I know really pretty well. And <clears throat> I had introduced Sandy to the Coastal Commission and the process of getting Spanish Bay approved. And Sandy is a lawyer by profession, was a lawyer by profession, and he's a man of somewhat conservative uh, pro- uh, proprietary values, member of San Francisco Golf Club, Cypress Point. But he was astounded at the public input on at these hearings, and he learned a lot by attending them as we uh, got Spanish Bay approved on behalf of the Pell Beach Corporation. Being a smart lawyer, he then took that uh, knowledge and helped uh, guide it through the public. So his, his major contribution was not architectural as such, although architecture is always a team effort. But it was just, uh, he knew the course. He played it as a child when he grew up, uh, or a young man at Stanford, and where he was an excellent player. He won the NCAA individual championships. And he uh, applied what he learned at Spanish Bay to the process of getting it approved. The, the, the PPC people, the, the tour, provided the capital, as I'm, I'm told, and that's another story. I'm not that familiar with how that worked out. But it was definitely a team effort, and Sandy was the uh, leader of it. Uh, he, he, was a great, he was a great man. He loved all aspects of the game. Yeah, I think you could call him sort of like the ultimate rainmaker. You know, when it comes to to golf, he's a guy who could see what needed to be done and would have both the intelligence, uh, the charisma, the determination, all these characters to take a project through to make sure that it got from start to finish and did it in a, a in the highest possible quality uh, result. Um, so let's talk about the result. He, he was also he was also a great mentor to, to, in different aspects of the game. He was a mentor to Tom Watson because of their Stanford connection when he was at Stanford. And you know what happened there. Tom Watson went on to, I think, eight major championships and one U.S. Open and, and several British, five British Opens, et cetera. And, um, and he was a mentor to me. Uh, he helped me and Tom Watson come together to help Spanish Bay occur. We were in competition with Nicholas at that time for that project. And uh, I need, needed a partner. And so we three did it together. It's like the three musketeers. Um, Watson, of course, was much more knowledgeable about the, the short game and the areas of chipping and putting and the link style of Spanish Bay. And uh, I can remember <laughs> Sandy had a different sense of, of dimension. And so I Bob, I need this bunker deeper, deeper. And he said, put it down a, a yard. And I said, Sandy, that's pretty far down. So we did it. And then he went down in there and he said, I can't see out of here. Fill it back up again. So <laughs> it was sort of trial and error. Uh, but anyway, he he did love that uh, aspect, the creation of new courses, the restoration of Hardy Park, which was one of his favorites. So Hardy Park, the golf course itself, is a fairly straightforward golf course. Well, we can talk about that if you want. I would like to. Well, um, in the the terrain around Lake Merced has many golf courses. It's the 36-hole complex Olympic. It has um, San Francisco Golf Club and Hardy Park all within uh, view of Lake Merced. Now, water in the West is at a, is a premium. 
So when any time you're in a sandy soil area where there's fresh water, that's that's golf ter- terrain. And the uh, early courses understood that certainly the city, but, that, but Harding Park itself is probably the um, simplest of the courses in the sense of the terrain was gentle, very I would say almost flat, and uh, it, and it was um, a classic layout. It's in a kind of a rectangular shape, which is uh, the case of many of the courses in that era, and they're built on on a piece of land, usually a quarter century land. And it's what we call a back-and-forth course. It goes out and back. And a lot of the holes are parallel to one another. There's no housing on it in the modern era. It's mm-hmm. a golf course. Mm-hmm. And occasionally it changes direction, like the first hole and the, and the 18th hole. But for the most part, it's what uh, Peter Thompson used to call, you looked at it from a uh, aerial, like you're flying over, like a bird flying over and look down on it. It would look like a plate of sausages That's a, <laughs> in this line of... Uh, <laughs> of uh, Peter Thompson as a design concept, meaning it goes back and forth, back and forth, um, the each hole parallel to the other. Mm. And and it's, it's tree-lined now. Uh, there were no trees initially. They were planted and they grew up. And so it needed that needed to be pruned out to get some fresh air and better maintenance uh, situations. Obviously, there's a lot of tweaking that was done, lengthening tee shots. For, even now, they're short for, for the current crop of players. But... Uh, the green, the basic layout is pretty much the same as it was. It's just much improved. Interesting. And uh, can you point out a couple of uh, signature holes or holes that we should uh, should watch out for? Well, I personally think uh, you know the the whole course holds together as a as a traditional hole. When you come off the green, you turn only a few paces to the next tee, so it plays relatively quickly. Hmm. Um, and uh, for the especially if the PGA course. Uh, we're going to have no spectators, and as, it, as I am told, it will not. I, I think you're going to see the rounds maybe 15, 20 minutes quicker than you might otherwise. Hmm. But a couple of holes, I think it's number 11, if I recall, par three. The par threes there are quite good. Um, an interesting variety stands out. And, of course, 18 stands out. It, it comes back around a, uh, a lake on the left, so it comes into play off the tee shot to an elevated green, and therefore... Um, if, 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 if the fans were allowed to be there, they would see a lot of drama on that last song. We're talking to Robert Trent Jones Jr., the venerable on the 19th hole. Michael Williams here, your host. Um, in general, Bobby, what what kind of player succeeds at Harding Park? Is it the bomber? Is it the chess player? The clutch putter? Who, 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 who wins at Harding Park? Um, generally speaking, I would say overall... From the past tournaments that have been played there, including the President's Cup and and other TPC events, it's a longer hitter. Mm-hmm. Remember Daly and yeah. Tiger Woods, I think, were in a playoff at one point. Or yeah. They were in, in buying in one of the championships, both very long hitters. Mm-hmm. Um, and that part is because these the holes are fairly straightforward. There's not a lot of dog lagging, so they can just let it go and, and, and let it, and they hit it, you know, 300 yards to Den and maybe now with the Chambly uh, 350. So um, you, you, it, the long hitter will uh, succeed there. They can bring its course to its knees. The greens are not large. They're, they're sweet. They're gentle contours. They're not strong, but at the speeds that they'll have these courses, which I hear the course is in perfect condition, uh, you know, the good putting will also be important. But it's very classic. It's not roly-poly greens, and it's not huge greens like St. Andrews. Mm. It's relatively target golf among the trees. And if uh, the conditions are are ideal, if we don't have a lot of uh, rain or wind or something like that, wh- where would you expect the winning scores to be? Whoa. Well, let's put it this way. Uh, there's always one thing we pray for at Harding Park, and that's wind. Right. We are near the ocean. We're near the sea. And therefore, the winds uh, can come in there and blow pretty strongly and and even in August, we we're going to pray for wind because otherwise, the course will be somewhat defenseless, uh, in my opinion. So you have a, depending on whether there is any wind, um, I would say, you know, and depending on the setup, if they don't do odd things, like put the, put the flagstick in a bunker or something, <laughs> then uh, <laughs> right. you're probably going to be, I'd say, 15 to 17 under. 15 to 17, yeah. And, you know, we see that type of score every once in a while in the, if wind, in the PGA if Championship. If wind, 
then um, I would say it could be half that, but let's see what happens. It'll be set up at championship level, and but these younger players, they are they hit the ball so far, and they're so accurate. Um, There'll be a lot of a lot of them being playing well here, here I think. I, I I agree with you. And um, uh, b- before I let you go, I wanted to. I just get your thoughts on you, you mentioned Bryson DeChambeau, who's sort of the the flavor of the day with the the, the way he's driving the ball and that sort of thing, and um, overall distance. And this just sort of reignites a conversation that's been on the boil or on the simmer, I should say, for for a number of years about um, limiting the ball, bifurcation, all these types of things. Where do you fall on that? Do you think that this guy is a signal that something must change? Or uh, did you feel that the ball needed to be reined in before? Where, where do you actually stand on all that stuff? <laughs> well, un- unfortunately, I think the genie's out of the bottle. They had a chance to, USGA and, R- and the RNA had a chance to do something about the specifications of the, of, the, of the ball. It's not just the ball itself. It's the dimple patterns, the fact you can't move the ball anymore, uh, launch angles, the clubs, the condition of the course as well as the athleticism of the younger male players that are driving the ball so far. By the way, the women players are not far behind. The Koreans hit the ball. Korean women hit the ball a long way, too. But we used to measure the distance in the Hogan and Skier uh, pattern off the tee, and it was around 250 yards. Now it's almost 100 yards farther, mm-hmm. 325 to 350 off the tee. So the older courses, including Hardy Park, are outmoded from the point of view of distance, therefore the lower, lower scores. Mm-hmm. You can only make a course so long, and, and it would be very boring for everybody else if, if it was uh, if all the whole all par fours were par fives or sixes. So uh, I think the ball should be reined in. I don't know how that can be done. I think the RNA and USA are trying to figure out a way to do that from what they say. Um, they've done a distance observations, but there are other ways to defend. And we did that at Chambers Bay. We defended by the ground game. We get let them hit it as far as they want, seventy six hundred yard course with no trees. So uh, if you, so the subtlety of the game, and, and by the way, Sandy Tatum was very big in subtleties, is the land itself. It's yeah. not how long it's in the air. It's when it lands on the ground. Is it very firm ground, and does the ball run out? And today, the ball does not run out on well prepared golf courses. So it's like playing darts. If you had the oddity and the unusual bounce. That's another way to defend. Then people would have to rethink their tactic and try and start trying to hit three hundred. They might want to hit three hundred to the correct side of the fairway, Hogan-esque in style. So there's many ways to defend besides lane. Exactly. You make such a good point about how to defend the golf course. Um, Again, we, every time we have this conversation, we go back to Chambers Bay, which is, uh, again, my other favorite quote of yours was, this is a, a laboratory for how to protect par against the modern player. Um, it is a a brilliant laboratory for that because it does things that other people just don't think of considering doing why do you have to have if guys can bomb at 350 why do they necessarily need level tee boxes make them hit the first shot off of an angle i think it's brilliant um having moguls so that if you hit it 350 you're going to hit it into a pachinko uh parlor and you know you'll have some you know, you'll have some uh, uh, uncertainty about where your ball finishes, not how far it's going to carry, but where do you actually want it to finish? I guess my point here is this. Look, guys, Jesse Owens ran the 100 meters in one time. And, you know, you have guys who are current champions. They run the, the, the 100 meters in a time that's, you know, seconds faster. We expect things to advance in other sports. Do we want to rein these guys in because we want to keep playing at these venues or because we want to see uh, scores be the same? It, it can't be because we want the scores to be the same, right? Because they're better players. They have different th- it's a different era, right? Well, it is a different era, but it isn't a question of just reining, reining them in. Um, the National has kept up with the East era by remodeling its own courses, lengthening them, right. and so on. At the championship level, it's a different thing. It's like playing touch football in a in, in a in a stadium, like uh, Giant Stadium in New York or Forty um, ers Stadium in San Francisco. You you feel a little out of place, mm-hmm. but that's where professional golf should be played. So there are courses such as Chambers Bay, such as Best Page Black, such as Augusta National, such as Wingfoot, that are truly championship golf courses. 
and they should be uh, recognized as such. But not every golf course needs to be a golf course. Exactly. Maybe except for the club championship of the, of the, of the club and so on. So I think, you know, courses for courses for courses for courses and and uh, golfers for courses are different. Unfortunately, we have, you know, almost 20,000 golf courses in the United States of various kinds, and we're experimenting with shorter courses and par three courses and all kinds of things now to get people more interested in the game. And that's really what's happening. Ironically, while professional golf and professional sports have been off the television, the one sport that's attracted people during this time of uh, staying socially distanced is golf. Right. I'm, I'm playing with sitting in a cart with nobody else in the cart. I'm uh, three feet away. The stick, I can't touch the ball. So you cannot touch the golf ball. Also, you get penalized by another player golf ball. So golf is perfect for this era that we're in, and you're seeing the courses being played much more quickly. we got to ban scrambles because every time you have a scramble, you have a meeting, and you can't socially distance and play golf if you're playing a scramble. So I think that the game itself has uh, actually boomed during this time for the people who are not tra- able to travel and are staying home, playing their own home courses, and that's a good thing. Yeah, the statistics bear out what you're saying. Golf is uh, uh, presented with a little bit of a boomlet, an opportunity here, and I guess the challenge is to, once you have people on the course, how to keep them there. You know, once uh, other other options become open, how do you, how do you keep those uh, people as interested in committing, committed to playing the game as they as they are right now? But uh, I guess if they had the opportunity to play in Hawaii, you wouldn't have to do much convincing. <laughs> well, I think it's a lucky, lucky place to be, but uh, it's still pretty remote. And uh, yeah, any golf course is a great place to be on and walk and stay healthy. You want, you need everybody needs some exercise. They've learned their immune system requires it, and uh, golf is a lifelong sport. I mean, you know, I've been playing it my entire life, and I'm still playing. And it, the other sports, you play in high school, lacrosse or football or even baseball after you leave college you're not likely to play that anymore maybe a little maybe a, few hoop, a few hoops and tennis and but golf lasts a lifetime so learn it when you're young and you'll enjoy it for your whole life indeed my friend as i always say if if i had your putter i'd be somebody i could really be something in this game <laughs> <laughs> if i could put if like i had you. your tee shot i'd be somebody when we played at hodgehead which is uh chambers bay light i like to call it uh, <laughs> i was so jealous of your tee shot <laughs> so what you do is you you have to make a team then you hit the tee shots and i'll make the putt i tell you we are the perfect three-legged race combination that's us we, we are ready we are ready to go for that uh bobby thanks so much man for spending some time yeah. as always and yeah, we'll, get... well the final thing the final thing i want to say is that yeah. i understand they're going to honor sandy tatum um and have a statue put in this place and i think he deserves that honor uh for all his contribution to the game as president of usga Sadly, one of his mentors, Grant Spade, just passed away. One of the people he mentored as mm-hmm. USJ president. And uh, I've been very blessed to have known him when he was alive and to be uh, helped help by him and so many others. And I think uh, Harding Park will be a fitting tribute to his dedication of golf and life and, and a great championship to watch on television. Amen and amen, I will say to that. Um, again, thanks, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Michael, as always. You got it. That's the amazing Robert Trent Jones Jr. Love, love, love talking to him about golf, about about life. I think I could talk about anything, you know. He's one of those few people who has um, a well-rounded knowledge. He's an educated, erudite man. If you ever see him walking around a golf course or anything, don't be scared. Walk up to him, and he will talk to you. And um, I had that experience at Augusta National. I was walking around talking to him, and we could barely get five feet before somebody would come up and say, hey, you designed my golf course, my home course. Here's my shirt. Would you sign this for me? What do you think of this? And he'll give everybody um, all the time they want. He's a a true gentleman. Love having him on. Uh, We'll take a break. We'll be back with more golf and stuff. Michael Williams, 19th hole, golf, WRX.
Welcome back to the 19th hole. Michael Williams here on Golf WRX. Uh, my favorite championship, uh, the U.S. Open, just announced that uh, for this year. Uh, as with many sporting events, there will be no spectators. Um, I think it was uh, a testament to the hard work of the USGA and uh, the state of New York that it took this long even to decide it. They were so, to me, that they were struggling to do everything they could to get fans uh, on course for this for this championship and uh, it just didn't work out uh, but you know, we still have a championship which is awesome that we're going to have a U.S. Open this year um, it's uh, I, I think it's just the linchpin of the season there's something about the U.S. Open I just love uh, joining me to talk about it is uh, the guy who is the guy behind the guy behind the guy for these championships uh, he is the senior managing director of championships and uh, one heck of a nice guy, uh, John Bodenhammer from the USGA. Uh, John, welcome back to the 19th hole. How are you, sir? I'm great, Michael. Thanks for having me on. It's always great to be with you. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you for taking the time. And um, as I said uh, in the open, it's, it, it's great that we're having a championship. And, of course, it's a disappointment that uh, we're not going to have uh, uh, fans, uh, spectators there at the event. Give us a little uh, look behind the scenes. How did you come to the decision? Who were the parties that were involved in the decision making? And how did you finally come to the, the realization that having spectators just wasn't going to be possible? Well, sure. It's, uh, it's like everything we've done this year. It's been, it's been quite a journey in recent months. And uh, I think uh, as the pandemic has unfolded, that's, Really, the hardest part about all of this has been the unknown and uh, really uncharted territory. Mm -hmm. But as we've gone through and navigated some of the decisions that we've made, and particularly around the U.S. Open or any of the four championships that we're, we're going to conduct this year, health and safety was paramount, far and away the, the most important consideration. It was just our guiding star in every decision that we made. Sure. And uh, with the U.S. Open, we uh, we really worked hard to build scenarios uh, that would um, that would allow us to go to the state of New York uh, with with every option possible uh, for fans. But in the end, uh, after some really uh, great collaborative work and discussions and and uh, and thoughtful consideration, putting health and safety first, we just we decided uh, together. Uh, and the state uh, really felt best that we not have fans and just essential workers on site, players, caddies, staff, a few volunteers. But I think more than anything, we're grateful. We're grateful for the chance, as you said, to crown a champion this year. We think to do it in the epicenter, what has been the epicenter of the virus in our country will be a real exclamation point to the season if we can do it. And you mentioned some of the people who are allowed to be there, and uh, I, I assume they're going to be there in – uh, smaller numbers than they would be in a typical year. The, the, I guess the groups that stand out for me in that sense are volunteers. Who I know you you usually have a, a legion of, of volunteers and uh, television, radio coverage, the media, which includes myself. Um, what are the limitations on those groups? And give me some idea of the number differences between a typical year and what you expect to see this year. Sure. It was, uh, it was really a process we went through to consider all of that with the state of New York. Uh, Wingfoot Golf Club has been magnificent throughout the whole process, too. I, sh I should mention that. But really, it'll, it'll be a different U.S. Open from the standpoint of who will be on site. Uh, typically, on a, any given day of a U.S. Open, uh, you uh, on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or even Sunday, you'll see uh, a Wingfoot 35 to 40,000 people. Everything from our partners at uh, NBC Universal and Golf Channel and broadcasting the event to uh, to thirty thousand fans each day to three to four thousand volunteers, a couple hundred staff, USGA Wingfoot staff, and and so on. Uh, you'll see much more scale back uh, this year, where it'll just be a couple thousand people on site. Uh, many of those will be. Our broadcast partners at NBC that will uh, televise the U.S. Opens, we always do to over 190 countries throughout the world and millions of golf fans and, and frankly, non-golfers that watch the U.S. Open because of what it is yeah, and exactly. the openness that it represents. And right. we're proud of that. And uh, we do have quite, that, quite, the, quite the following. 
and uh, but again, every decision that we've made uh, has been around keeping everybody associated with the championship uh, healthy and safe. And um, you know, making that decision wasn't easy. It was our our senior championship leadership staff, the uh, executive leadership staff, the organization, and our executive committee. But really, it was a it was a great effort. We're grateful to Governor Cuomo, State of New York, uh, the health department. Uh, they really wanted to see this championship played in the state of New York. Yeah, think of the inspiration. Sure, Again, exactly. In the center exactly. of what was the hot spot in our country. And uh, really great for the local Westchester County, New Rochelle, Momerinic community and the state of New York and the game of golf. So we're excited about it. We think it's going to be, we think it's going to be a great accomplishment uh, to crown a champion. And, well, let's say we're talking to John Bodenhammer. He's the uh, Senior Managing Director of Championships for the USGA. I'm Michael Williams, your host here on the 19th hole, Golf WRX. Uh, I'm going to ask about the, the TV coverage because you have this uh, uh, reduced uh, crew, I would expect. And this is your first year of your uh, reconnect with NBC Universal and the Golf Channel and being the broadcast partner. Uh, is this going to affect the TV coverage uh, and how you how you execute it? Will we notice it on on TV? I think you will notice it mm-hmm. uh, in a number of meaningful ways. But you know, it's like <laughs> this has really been a year of change and uh, and really, uh, as I said, uncharted territory and the, the NBC reengagement, uh, as I would put it. Uh, is something that yeah viewers will notice a change certainly the talent on air will be different uh the manner in which it is broadcast will certainly have some differences uh you know fox was a great partner uh they innovated uh i think anybody in the industry would would tell you that the standard that they set with innovation was was amazing uh nbc uh, and their experience with golf and their power in sports will, will only enhance um, what the U.S. Open is. And, you know, it is a re-engagement because for many years we were, uh, NBC was our partner, and, and many of those same folks that were in place five, six years ago uh, when we uh, went in a different direction with Fox are still there. And so it is a re-engagement. Uh, we know many of them, not all of them, and they know most of us. And so... Uh, while we're reinventing the wheel a little bit this year, it's not a complete start from scratch, and that'll be helpful. And, um, you know, some of them were at Wingfoot in 2006 mm-hmm. when it unfolded, so there's some familiarity. But even that is different because, you know, you think about Wingfoot in 2006, and what a great iconic U.S. Open venue with all the history that's been there, and what a magnificent golf course. Um, but most of the players today haven't played Wingfoot, especially in the U.S. Open. There will be, a, as of today, there are 14 players in the field that played in 2006. Wow. Field of 144. Wow. 14 of them played in 2006. Not huh. many. Not many at all. And so uh, some of the young guns are seeing it for the first time. should be interesting. It's going to be fascinating. Um, and they should study their history on Wingfoot because I think that uh, <laughs> Wingfoot in 1974, uh, I believe, affected golf course design for the next 30 years that combined with Oakmont in 73 and I think golf course designers looked at Johnny Miller putting up a 63 on the hardest golf golf course in the world uh, uh, arguably uh, in the US Open and then responded to that I think the resp- I always felt the response to that was Wingfoot in 74 we get the massacre at Wingfoot and uh, Hale Irwin winning at uh, what four over I think was his score um, Seven over. Seven over, right. Yeah. Um, and Hale will tell you that. <laughs> he would know. <laughs> but it's uh, it's it's it, literally an iconic golf course, and uh, I can't wait to see championship golf being played there. Uh, you were responsible largely for the setup of this course for this event. What are we going to see? Are we going to see something that's more akin to Wingfoot in 2006, Wingfoot in 1974? Any Any insights on that one? I think you'll see Wingfoot being Wingfoot. As it has Nicely done, been. John. So Nicely been, done. <laughs> you know, from 1929 when Bob Jones uh, made that 12-footer on 18 and then won in a, thir- think about it, 36 holes uh, Saturday and that 12-footer on, on um, 
eight team to get into the playoff uh, and then to win the playoff that next Sunday, a 36-hole playoff by 23 strokes. And then you go on through the years, Billy Casper in 1959 and Fuzzy in 84 and and uh, Hale Irwin certainly in 74 and Jeff Ogilvy in 2006. It, it, you look at the history, as and I've watched each of the, I've looked at each of those events both on YouTube and in, in documents through our museum and library and at Wingfoot with their historian and a lot of similarities. And it really centers around that magnificent golf course, that A.W. Tillinghouse design and those putting greens. Yeah. Wingfoot uh, from, from teeing area to putting green is a challenge and getting your ball in the fairway and out of that rough will be key. But those putting greens are as magnificent as there are in the game. And, and it really has been, the focal point of, of, of the U.S. Open over the years. It's, you know, it's really uh, not just making putts, but being able to uh, approach, get approach shots into those greens from the fairway so you can keep the ball below the hole and strategically position the ball in ways that you can, that will allow you to score. And I, and I think this year you'll see some things that will be reminiscent of what you, the U.S. Open has always been. You'll see Wingfoot being Wingfoot. We could dial up the Wingfoot. We could dial up Wingfoot in a week and play the U.S. Open there yeah, yeah. if we had to. Yeah. It's just that type of place. It's it, Oakmont is that way. Yeah. Shinnecock is that way. Right. There are a number of places that are like Pebble. that. Not many. Pebble. You Wingfoot's list, one right? of that small. Yeah, you can you can do that. Um, but Wingfoot. Uh, Wingfoot just is, it just oozes the U.S. Open. It's just a great test. You you have to uh, shape your ball. You have to control it once it lands on the ground. And then you have to, uh, you know, you have to uh, be able to uh, maneuver those putting greens. And then the mental fortitude is, is going to be, is going to be important. I think you'll see without fans, you'll see, you'll see uh, vistas that you wouldn't see with the structures or the fans that are there. Players hit it outside the ropes. Uh, the roof won't be trampled down as much. They're going to have to. They're going to have to maneuver that. There won't be as many drops uh, or TIO relief into into drop zones. Uh, where they hit it is where they'll find it, and they'll hit it from. And, and Wingfoot uh, will provide a, a really good test. And you just made a really good point there. With no fans, no spectators, there won't be uh, no fans, no stands. So we won't see those those stands and the whole the hospitality tents that we normally see. Will there will there be any any of that infrastructure on the course? There will not. Uh, wow, we'll that's have awesome. Some, actually, anyway. uh, structures that will be on the perimeter of the golf course uh-huh. to allow volunteers to stage for for uh, our broadcast partners, but but really there won't be any of that. We've eliminated uh, we've eliminated all of that, and so it will. You know, there's a there's an upside to that from the standpoint of the the aesthetics. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, how that will play, but there's also look. There's also this you know the side of not having fans and those roars on, uh, over the weekend and and all of that. But we think it'll look magnificent on the broadcast, both uh, linear television and 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 digitally, and uh, and we think that's um, that's going to be very special in a year like we've had. We're talking to John Bodenhammer. He's the Senior Managing Director of Championships for the USGA. Um, here, Michael Williams, your host here on the 19th hole. Uh, I just want to grab you for a few more minutes and uh, ask you, um, we're playing in September, and that was a great point that we're not going to have these stands out there, so we'll get these these views that you would typically get. You get these guys playing wing foot as it stands in its, I would say in its air quotes, natural state. That's kind of a uh, literally a beautiful thing. And the course is being playing. The tournament is being played in September rather than in June. Are there any challenges in setup, or will the course inherently play differently because of the agronomy changes that may be uh, in play when you when you have a competition there in September rather than June? Yes, there there will be some differences. I would start with uh, daylight. Typically, the U.S. Open is played uh, during the week with mm-hmm. the most daylight hours uh, at any point during the year. And it's Father's Day, typically right near the summer solstice. So we have a lot of daylight uh, right. available. Where right. in September, we've got about two hours a day less. And so that'll impact uh, uh, some of what we do from the standpoint of our field will be smaller. Instead of 156 players, we'll have 144 players. 
and um, so, so that's one thing. And uh, we will um, we'll just be a little more constrained with daylight if, and uh, those sorts of things. And but we'll plan for it if we need to play off on the weekend, sort of a little bit earlier on uh, Sunday to accommodate that. Mm-hmm. But I think from an agronomic standpoint or a course setup standpoint, fall. Well, actually, it's technically still the summer. Yeah. Um, in uh, in September, when we finish on the twentieth of September, but that time of year can be spectacularly beautiful in the Northeast, mm-hmm. as you know, Michael. Uh, you know, as any U.S. Open, just like Pebble Beach last year, uh, the weather uh, will be, you know, will dictate uh, really what the outcomes are in many ways. Uh, you know, we didn't get the wind at Pebble last year, but we had magnificent course conditions. Mm-hmm. Literally perfect putting greens. The guys took advantage of it. We got a little bit of wind. It, it would have been a little bit more like Pebble we're used to, but right. but we didn't, and that's okay. It was a great U.S. Open, and I think Wingfoot will be the same way if we get uh, the weather in a way that's um, fairly warm and, and dry. We'll be able to control the setup in the golf course where we would want to position it so firm and fast conditions are in play, which we think provides uh, the optimal playing experience for the best players in the world. But if we get wet conditions, that's okay, too. Wingfoot will stand up to all of it. It always has over the years and will uh, this year. I have no doubt. And uh, I guess I wanted to ask, is there any chance since you have this championship being held at this venue under ex- <coughs> excuse me, extraordinary circumstances, um, is there a possibility that Wingfoot could get a mulligan sometime in the future and maybe come back within <laughs> three, four years to, to have it as you would normally have it? Well, Wingfoot's a very, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Wingfoot uh, is a very special partner. As, as I've said, we've, we've had a long run with U.S. Opens at Wingfoot over, over many years, starting back, as I said, in 1929, with Bob Jones winning. But Wingfoot's also hosted uh, the U.S. Women's Open, the Walker Cup, the U.S. Amateur, the U.S. Women's Amateur, and just a really special partnership with Wingfoot, and we treasure that, and I think the club does too. I know the club does, and so yes, I, I you know we're confirmed with the U.S. Open through 2027, uh, and uh, you know three or four years might not be in the cards, but I would sure hope if the club is willing, uh, we would go back just as soon as possible. I'll tell you one thing: this year's U.S. Open isn't what. Wingfoot signed up for. Right, of course. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of members that w- would have liked to have been out with us and had their friends and family out and, sh- and really experienced their great club in a meaningful way, and that's not going to happen this year. But we do hope at the USGA that we'll be able to go back as soon as possible. And it's just such a special place. It provides such a, a great venue for what we do at the U.S. Open. And, um, we really want to continue that partnership uh, for many, many years to come. Well, I, for one, can't wait to uh, to look at this championship. And I know I'm going to have to view it from a distance. But for this year, as we always say, that that's good enough for this year. And congratulations on really pulling this championship together. And, uh, yeah, whenever you want to come and talk about it, I say post-tournament, um, you have a soapbox and a megaphone to do that, sir, right here. Well, Michael, you're very kind. I would say... Uh, you know, it's 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 a uh, we're grateful. I think grateful is a word we use a lot mm. these days to be able to play. And you think about these four championships we're going to play this year. Three of them go back to our founding. They're over 120 years old. And then the Women's Open. Think about it. U.S. Women's Open in December. That's going to be amazing in its own right. But in its 75th year. And we just feel felt very strongly to make every effort we could to conduct these four and if we can achieve that, it will be what uh, you know something that we'll look back on. Others will look back on decades from now and say, "Wow, they really achieved something special in 2020 through all of those challenges." And um, that excites us. Uh, that motivates us, and um, we're going to do everything we can to pull that off in a grand way. Well, it's going to be quite literally one for the books. And as I say, we'll be watching. John, thanks so much for spending some time, and please do come back on again soon. Thank you, Michael. You got it. That is John Bodenhammer. He's the Senior Managing Director of Championships for the USGA, um, a great organization, um, a great steward of, of the game of golf, 
uh, made some great points there about having those stands and being able to see the championship and the golf course in a different kind of way. If you're looking to make uh, lemonade out of lemons, that's something that you can take and, and look for uh, when we watch it on TV. Uh, the fact that we have less daylight, something to look at. I didn't even think of that, that you have uh, less daylight. So you have to sort of compress that time and make sure that you get play done uh, before it gets dark. All the things that go into a championship like this, the detail is just mind numbing. And uh, I am so glad that they do it because I'm not sure that I have the constitution for it. Thank God for uh, uh, folks like John and Mike Davis and all the folks up there who run the, the USJ, GSG, USGA in their great championships. Um, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with more golf and stuff. Michael Williams, 19th hole, golf, WRX. that's it and that's all for this edition of the 19th hole i want to thank my very special guests robert trent jones jr for dropping some knowledge on tpc harding park and about the legacy of that golf course i love to see championships at public golf courses that's where i uh, got into the game is at public golf courses it's important that they are recognized and made to be in the condition so that everybody can play championship golf not just the well-heeled also john bodenhammer the uh guy who really just <laughs> i don't know if you, if you think about it, i try to compare like a director a producer uh what what does he equate to on the entertainment side but he's the guy who puts that show together for a championship golf at the usga and uh really again sharing some insights about what we're going to see when a championship moves from one date to another uh, when nobody is there. Really some great insights from him, so I'm so grateful he could spend some time. Well, you can find this show and all of our great podcasts on Golf WRX at GolfWRX.com. You can also find them on Spotify, uh, Apple Music, SoundCloud, and a host of other locations where great podcasts are posted. Um, you can, uh, as I said before, find me on social media at Instagram, Michael Williams TV. Twitter, Michael on TV, hit me up. Operators are standing by and we can talk about things. Okay. We'll have coffee. We'll talk. Um, that is our show for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure bringing you some golf and golf lifestyle. Um, we'll see you next week to talk about the uh, aftermath of the PGA Championship. Until then, go out, play some golf balls, hit them straight. And remember, don't count the days, make the days count. Michael Williams, 19th hole, golf, WRX.